Good evening. Welcome to uh, the first lecture of week four, the final week of Rare Book School 1989. These are um, just a few brief announcements for uh, Rare Book School students. The Notions Shop, two P's, one E, is uh, a place uh, down the hall where you can buy used books, original broadsides printed at the Book Arts Press, and Rare Book School mugs, T-shirts, aprons. You can't buy these in any store. All proceeds go to the uh, support the Rare Book programs here at Columbia. The Notion Shop will be open after the lecture this evening. Stop in on the way to the, to the reception. Please don't hesitate to see me or any of the other Rare Book School staff. You can identify us by our ribbons. If you have any problems, especially housing problems, don't go to the conference housing office. People have been doing that, and, and they get in deeper trouble going there. Remember, there is no admission to Butler Library before 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the doors are open, but that's not an invitation. Uh, the library opens to students at, at 9, and there's no, no coffee until 9 anyway, so please observe that rule. Another reminder to check the message and information board on your way to and from breaks. I noticed that there are already messages for some people in this room tacked up on the message board. That's right outside of room 522. A few notes on the uh, final week of Rare Book School. Um, tomorrow night is the last installment of Terry Bellinger's four-part series, Ourselves Observed, Education for Rare Books with Bells and Whistles. That's at 6.05 here tomorrow night. Come and find out what the bells and whistles are. On Wednesday night, Steve Clay, the president of Granary Books, has invited Rare Book School students to a, an open house at his new shop in the village from 5.30 to 7.30. Check the message board tomorrow for directions on how to get there if, um, well, um, for the address and for directions how to get there. I'll, I'll, they're in the Vade Mecum, but also um, I will tack them up on the board too. Thursday night, also at 6.05 in this room, Thomas Staley, the director of the uh, HRC in Austin, Texas, will lecture on keepers, collectors, and curators, a near turn-of-the-century view, also to be followed by a reception. And Friday, the format for Rare Book School is a little different. We end early at 4 o'clock. Uh, immediately after your evaluations for a final party. So uh, be aware that um, the, the Rare Book School Day is slightly different then. Tonight I'm so happy to present Steve Corey, who is the Director of Special Collections at uh, U University of San Francisco. Steve has lectured here at Rare Book School, has taught at Rare Book School, the course in uh, developing collections of fine printing, with um, MacArthur, new MacArthur Fellow Claire Van Vliet. 
Um, tonight, he addresses us on developing collections of fine printing for libraries. Further thoughts, Steve. Thank you, Martin. I am delighted to be here this evening talking about one of my favorite topics, fine printing. In some ways, I am unqualified to speak on the subject. I am no printer and barely know the difference between a frisket and a frying pan. But I am a dedicated appreciator and have seen a great deal of printing over the years. I have been building up the fine press collections at the Gleason Library, University of San Francisco, since 1974, emphasizing the printers of the San Francisco Bay Area with a wide range of other presses as well. I also have my own modest collection of fine printing. I'm a founding editor of Fine Print Magazine, for which I still write occasional reviews. And over the years, I have had the opportunity to speak with many printers and collectors about various aspects of fine printing. And this is, this is my second talk here on fine printing. The first time was in 1985. In the summers of 86 and 87, I taught a course at Rarebrook School called Developing Collections of Fine Printing. So here I am back again with some further considerations, and it is true that much has happened in the printing world in the past four years. Although I will discuss a number of issues that I brought up in 1985, I also want to mention some recent developments and at the end to show you some slides of recent examples of fine printing, mostly since 1975. First, let us define our term. What is fine printing? If there is ordinary and even poor printing churned out by the ton, there is fine printing at the high end of the scale. Nearly all of the fine printing produced today is done by traditional letterpress methods uh, in limited editions. Fine printing can come from a commercial or jobbing firm, but these days most fine printing comes from private presses, one or two man shops. Not all private press printing is fine printing, of course, just as not all letterpress printing is fine printing. Fond illusions that letterpress printing automatically implies competence and taste are by no means justified. Actually, fine printing can come from almost any printing process. Certainly, there is a percentage of offset work that is well-designed and carefully printed. But for most of us, the notion of fine printing must include the use of the finest materials available, starting with the paper. Or as Harry Duncan put it in his essay on the art of the printed book, bookmaking is determined almost entirely by the techniques at our disposal and the contemporary conventions of book communications, but only almost, so we have traditions to follow. There remain certain choices of typeface, paper stock, page dimension, and so on, up to the architectural integrity of the format as a whole. In the most successful work, these choices have been the responsibility of one person whose controlling intelligence is embodied in the objective book. Obviously, this personal involvement can be fullest for typographers who work by hand at so-called private presses where every aspect of production is in their intimate grasp. To a certain extent, fine printing is in the eye of the beholder. For example, although William Morris's Kelmscott Press is credited with the revival of printing and uh, is regarded as one of the great presses of all time, 
Many of the actual volumes are not, at least to our eyes, particularly visually appealing. Not fine at all, if you will. But the integrity of the materials, the integrity of his vision, are apparent. The products of his distinctive vision will always be considered fine printing. To take a more recent example, I have a feeling that some of the books that Walter Hamity produced at his perishable press will date badly visually. Even now, one hears the occasional grumble about the Hamity look, apparent in much of the work of his many students. But as in the case of William Morris, Hamity's materials are the best. His use of many different kinds of his own handmade paper and his own distinctive vision, even if not to everyone's taste, surely must always be considered fine printing. Hamity is also a useful example to underscore a problem I have about the focus of fine printing. His texts are interesting, and at least most of them well chosen, the collected sayings of his young daughter to the contrary notwithstanding. But it is clear that he has a serious commitment, both as a poet and a hard-working printer, to his texts. They are not reprints of classics, far from it. But in spite of the attention to text, can anyone doubt that the printing for Walter Hamity and other fine printers is the thing? No matter how much attention is devoted to the text, and he's devoted to his texts, can anyone um, in fine printing, I'm sorry, no matter how much attention is devoted to the text in fine printing, the emphasis is always on the printing, the physical presentation. That is the gulf between small press printers, for instance, and fine printing. Current thinking concerning the printer's task uh, was admirably summed up by W. Thomas Taylor in an entry in his Catalog 42, issued in 1986. There is a long note at item 80, which is so thoughtful and articulate that it is worth giving verbatim. Mr. Taylor is offering a copy of the 1936 Cambridge University Press edition of Stanley Morrison's First Principles of Typography. And this is uh, Tom's lengthy note. Quote, rereading this classic of modern typographic literature, I am struck by how really dull a piece of writing it is. Much that is obvious to a person of taste is belabored, and a person without taste will hardly be transfigured by this little tract. Indeed, the famous phrase, typography is the efficient means to an essentially utilitarian and only accidentally aesthetic end, and the accompanying call for obedience to convention, can and has led to disaster when conventional typographic taste becomes insipid and efficiency is an end unto itself. It becomes, ironically, an excuse for typography reduced to its lowest common denominator. Moreover, the notion that aesthetics is only accidental to excellent typography is nonsense. The aesthetics of one of Morris's own well-ordered books may seem limited, but that aesthetics are involved can be clearly seen by comparing it to most any trade book spewed forth today by a New York publishing house. Restraint and clarity are simply forms of disciplined aesthetic, not the evidence of the lack of one. A better title for his essay would have been First Prejudices of Typography, which might excuse or at least explain venom against the superstitious love of the book-buying class for its handmade papers, untrimmed, ugly, 
and dirt gathering edges. Where is he? Else, get, let me at him. My mind is not so well ordered or square edged as Mr. Morrison's. I fear I must side with the superstition. But books, as Harry Duncan so well put it, are communicative instruments so vital to civilization that their production must not be consigned wholly to automatic means. In the process of transmitting culture, they embody it and therefore need to undergo the vicissitudes of the human condition so that they will reflect our common experience truly. In other words, printing, fine printing, grows too in its own way. In his recently published essay, Fine Printers, the New Generation in Southern California, published by the California State Library Foundation, Ward Ritchie makes a disarmingly simple statement, almost an aside, that I think sums up the current situation in the world of fine printing. It is, what was once a craft is now becoming an art. And at the perspective of 84 years, uh, that's a rather remarkable thing to say. He isn't reactionary in saying, and I hate it, and it shouldn't happen, and there were good printers in the old days. He sees what's happening, and that is a summation of it, and I think it's a very good one. It uh, made me a little calmer. I'm not so happy with the developments of uh, the current developments, but that spoke of an inevitability uh, and a grace that uh, I wish I had thought of myself. Fine printers today now collaborate with the papermaker, the artist, and the author. This collaboration is traditional in Livre d'Artiste, but has only recently been the practice of more and more fine printers. There is no doubt that the Livre d'Artiste of 50 years ago have influenced the current generation of fine printers, even to the extent that some young printers are also their own artists, such as Wesley Tanner of the Reef Press and Harry and Sandra Reese at their Turkey Press near Santa Barbara. And Claire Van Vliet is perhaps the most important example of all. And as Martin mentioned, uh, she was given a MacArthur gift, is it called? It's not a hmm? fellowship, absolutely, recently, which uh, I think she richly deserved in the Bay Area. Adrian and Joyce Wilson were given one. But her work, uh, which straddles the art world and the book world, uh, has been remarkable for over 20 years. Harry Duncan refers to letterpress printing, particularly the hand press, as refractory floatsome from a sunken technology. But people continue to want to use letterpress printing. They can be divided into three main groups. Some are interested in literature and be believe so passionately in someone's writing, even their own, that nothing but the best will do, either uh, by having the text printed letterpress or to the extent of learning how to print letterpress themselves. And many printers have come to printing from the literary approach. Some are artists who are interested in book illustration or are interested in making their own book as an art form. God forbid. The third group is interested in printing for its own sake. In this category are the private press printers. The best fine printing seems to be produced by this third category, those for whom the printing itself is the great thing. The best printers properly balance the text and illustrations with their typography, but even the best printers achieve this balance only occasionally.
it's simply impossible to cover all the recent events of even the past four or five years, but I have a few thoughts that came to mind that I want to share with you as perhaps a little more than of passing interest, and some of it may be news to you to have the facts uh, straight, and I will just cover a few topics uh, of recent development in the realm of recent developments. In New York, the Red Osier Press is no more. They produce beautifully, beautiful and distinguished editions of contemporary uh, literature, and they were superb craftsmen. But Steve Miller left to accept the teaching position at the University of Alabama last August, vacated by Richard Gabriel Rummins, who left, as he said, to escape. He escaped to Los Angeles, uh, Hollywood specifically, where he decided to pursue a career as a script writer. I have long considered his Plain Wrapper Press publications as one of the finest, as, as among the finest printing of the 20th century. He had two major retrospectives before he gave it all up, first at the New York Public Library, then at the Gleason Library, University of San Francisco, I am pleased to say. We have been good friends over the years, and I was shocked when he gave up printing. You can imagine the odd feelings that surged through me when he recently sent me his first film script and asked me to critique it. This from one of fine printing's greats. The availability of type has changed dramatically, and finding suitable type is a growing problem for printers. Most of the great foundries of Europe and England have given up their hot metal type operations, including the Lanston Monotype Corporation in England. In the United States, the fate of, well, of the well-known firm of Mackenzie Harris in San Francisco is uncertain. Founded in 1915, for most of its history, it was owned by Colonel Carol T. Harris, after his death, it was purchased by Othmar Peters, who added a cold type operation that became more successful than the hot metal type. Peters sold the firm once more to a large out-of-town typesetting firm about a year ago. The most recent purchaser soon became disillusioned with the hot metal side of the business, and it looked like the great tradition of hot type in San Francisco was about to end. Just a couple of months ago, the Lyra Corporation headed by Andrew Hoyam, purchased the hot metal type portion of the business, which is now called M&H Type. The cold metal type operation will continue to be known as Mackenzie Harris. There was a sigh of relief when Andy decided to keep up the hot metal type business, but it is uncertain that he will be able to make it pay. Then what? But as the Mackenzie Harris firm fragments, a new type firm grows. Harold Berliner has amassed an incredible array of casters and matrices in Nevada City, California, a small town in Gold Rush country. In addition to being a very successful lawyer, he is also the proprietor of the private press of Harold Berliner and, clearly, is serious about making a go of it in typesetting as well. Then there are small one-man type operations, such as Paul Hayden Dunsing for special fonts and faces. As computer typefaces become more and more sophisticated, I think we're going to see more and more fine printers try their hand at producing books designed by computer. In the San Francisco Bay Area, Adobe Systems has become a leader in developing these new faces. And both Peter Rutledge Koch and Wesley Tanner have been working with the proprietor, Sumner Stone. Adobe Systems is about to introduce a Garamond face, but the commercial version is not yet released. 
Nevertheless, Wesley and Peter have both produced exhibit catalogs for Stanford using earlier versions of the Garamond, and both catalogs are extremely handsome. We'll see one of them later. For those of you who don't know, this is my personal list in rough alphabetical order uh, of the uh, current major fine press dealers. In, uh, uh, in, yes, in alphabetical order. No, no prejudices, no uh, emphases here. Bromer Booksellers in Boston uh, is operated by Ann and David Bromer. They sell at the high end of the market, and the prices sometimes seem to be in lira. But they, <laughs> but they find magnificent copies of magnificent books. Califia Books of San Francisco is operated by Edwina Leggett. She sells children's books and fine art books in addition to fine printing. The emphasis is on new work, including artists' books. Dawson's of Los Angeles has been selling fine printing for the past 40 years, concentrating in West Coast printers, but the stock is wide-ranging and the price is always right. Granary Books, operated by Stephen Clay, began in Minneapolis, but has recently moved to New York, 636 Broadway at Bleecker, for those of you who are going to the reception. 636 Broadway at Bleecker. The 1988 catalog has an incredible 1,018 entries, nearly all fine printing. They have the largest stock of new printing to be found, I believe, in the United States, if, if not the world. Joshua Heller, along with his wife Phyllis, have sat up in Washington, D.C., and have issued eight catalogs of carefully selected fine presses, past and present, all particularly fine copies. W. w. Thomas Taylor of Austin also sells a wide range of fine printing in fine condition as well as his own printing. In England, Charlene Gary's firm, Basilisk Press, emphasized English fine printing and uh, issued a series of splendid catalogs, number six being the most recent. It was also her last catalog, I am sad to say, as I have just learned of her death. In addition to being a splendid bookwoman, uh, she was also one of the Earth's blithe spirits, and she will be sorely missed by her many friends. Bertram Rhoda Limited, under the able guidance of Anthony Rhoda, has always had a fine stock of press books in addition to their principal stock of modern literature. You can pay me a little later, Anthony. Yes, oh. Michael Taylor, now in Harleston, Norfolk, is a former protege of Charlene Gary's, uh, our legacy from her. He specializes in illustrated books and has just issued his own catalog, 11. He wrote a series of yearly overviews for Matrix magazine, which always struck me as the finest things of their kind, sensible, sensitive, and balanced. Monica Strauss of New York is what one might call a crossover dealer. Her main interest is artists' books. But this is the index to her catalog one issued in 1988 as an example and is an example of the incursion of the art world into that of fine printing. This is her index. Alphabets, avant-garde, early 20th century. Bookie wookie. I haven't figured that one out yet. Catalogs, fine printing, graphic design, livre d'artiste, periodicals, photography, typography. It is interesting that although the catalog is well illustrated, not one of the illustrations is of fine printing. 
couple of useful periodicals just to uh, keep in mind if you don't already know about them. A computer-generated list entitled Private Presses in the United States and Their Proprietors, a few P's there, compiled by Arthur Goldsmith, Jr., is now available from Mr. Goldsmith. He is also the new American editor for the Private Library Association's annual publication of private press books. This list is of limited value since its main purpose is to provide a means of identifying the proprietor when the name of the press is known, or identifying the press when the proprietor's name is known. That's the only purpose of the list. I've spoken to him about this, but uh, I haven't gotten too far yet, but I hope I do. But it, it is an up-to-date up uh, compilation dated May 22nd of this year and contains just over 1,600 presses in alphabetical order. Past and present, their proprietors and city and state location information. So that's got to be useful to somebody. Even though outdated, the catalog of special and private presses in the rare book division of the New York Public Library, issued in 1978 uh, by G.K. Hall, is still an extremely useful work and also includes book designers and book clubs, which issue fine printing. For the past several years, A.B. Bookman's Weekly has produced a special fine press book arts issue, including a directory of fine press book arts services. The publication date of this year's special issue is July 31st. It can be the first on your block. Ziziva, a literary quarterly published in San Francisco, has been printing a, ser a series on local printers, mostly those with a strong art interest. The Meadow Press and the Poltroon Press have already been featured, and the next press article will be on Wesley Tanner and his Arif Press. From Los Angeles, we have now had two issues of Abracadabra. We go from Z to A. Published by the irrepressible Joseph D'Ambrosio, an artist printer who makes elaborately handmade books. Um, and apparently they're going to be issued at about the rate of one a year. Is that a periodical? Okay. Perhaps the most perplexing problem at present is the increasing involvement uh, with the world of uh, involvement with the art world, with the world of fine printing? To begin with, there seems to be great confusion about the definition of the word book, at least as uh, the art world seems to approach it. I remember a pleasant young man, a, a Mr. George Bailey from Tallahassee, Florida, who telephoned me to say that he was in town and that he had made some books that he would like to show me. He understood we collected such things. We set up an appointment, and he brought along several of his books, each carefully wrapped and proudly presented. They were long, accordion-pleated pieces, very ingeniously spray-painted in many attractive colors, full of interesting patterns. On the back, too. The cover, and I use the term advisedly, uh, advisedly was sprayed with the title X equals X. That and the phrase, words are not ideas, made up the text of the book. That's it. <laughs> there were several larger books, equally colorful, each one unique, and most of them with no word of any kind inside. With pride, he told me how carefully each one was made and how much time each one took. 
He was finishing up an art degree in Florida. How did I like his books, he asked. I hope you can understand some of the conflicting emotions surging in my breast. I said, very nice, but I find it difficult to consider these books. He was surprised and a bit upset. So I pulled out all the old chestnuts, including, for instance, the notion of multiple duplication of text, if there is any, uh, that one-of-a-kind one books really are a contradiction in term. One-of-a-kind books. Antithetical to the basic notion of the function of a book. I also suggested that a book without words, or virtually without words, is also a contradiction in terms. He said, what about books of photographs? Aren't those books? I responded that the codex form has been used for many different functions. I asked him a question. I said, why is it important that what you have made should be called a book? He responded with something vague about experimentation with the definition of the book, expanding the horizons of the book. Thanks. I asked him in all seriousness because there seemed to be such a great gulf, such a large mystery. I asked him, had I missed something recently? Was there a new dynamic school of thought, a new movement that I had not heard about? Had Susan Sontag written another seminal essay I had not read? This one on the nature of the thing we call books? Had, um, how had this notion suddenly become so prevalent that anything could be a book if that is what you wanted to call it? The upshot was that I was pretty clearly a mossy old fossil, hopelessly embedded in the past. To me, Mr. Bailey was not producing books. He was an artist, even an interesting and hard-working one, producing book-like objects, but not books. He mentioned he was going to go see Anthony Bless at the Bancroft Library. I hastened to caution our artists not to expect too much. Tony's notion of a book is one that considers the 18th century as modern first editions. <laughs> Early editions of the Vermont de la Rose are more like it. So off went our Daniel to the lion's den. He came back, Mr. Bailey did, somewhat smugly, and told me that Tony had raved about his work. Tony had dragged in most of the staff to look at them and finally, and finally chose one of the largest ones. What could I do? I finally bought X equals X. <laughs> if only so it could exemplify my quandary. <clears throat> he's, he's... No, I, on screen is enough. He subsequently wrote me a letter, and this is part of it. Have you considered my suggestion to add a few examples of non-traditional books to your collection? A small selection of diversified books in juxtaposition to the books in your collection would act to reinforce and more clearly state the importance and intentions of fine press books. I feel books of this nature would function as an excellent educational tool in describing what a book is or what a book could be. Mr. Bailey aside, there are some pretty iffy examples of books being produced by acknowledged printers. The book bound in full shower cap, for one. <clears throat> the book with the text pages laminated and then trimmed into weird shapes with pinking shears. Uh, limited to ten copies, it's now in its second edition. 
the various works housed in various aluminum containers. A splendid symbol of these troubled times is the exhibit catalog, Breaking the Bindings. Not a bad title for that catalog. American Book Art Now, an exhibition of creative bookmaking produced in the United States since 1980, uh, exhibited in 1983 at the Elvum Museum in Madison, Wisconsin. Catherine Harper Mead, the director of the Elvum Museum of Art at Madison, uh, states in her foreword that the exhibit invites us to take a look at what the book can be and to review traditional definitions we had perhaps too complacently accepted. Ha! She was intrigued by the thought that the book, as it created by today's artists, is not necessarily something one reads. And finally, she speaks of the fine art of bookmaking instead of the art of fine bookmaking. Subtle distinction. Even more disturbing are some of Walter Hamady's statements in his preface. He mentions that the seminar made no attempt to define what a book is. Rather, the works selected for the exhibition should speak for themselves and suggest possible connections. He lists 10 objectives, the last three being to encourage the continuation of a literary heritage threatened more dangerously than ever in human history by electronic computer technology to encourage a continuing awareness of our ongoing humanity as it is transmitted by both clarity of language and by the clarity of the form of the letters and the works and arrangement thereof, and to show contemporary industry how to use the new technology in a way that does not compromise our heritage of clarity in the perception of traditional letter forms. That's all right. His next sentence is, now that our investigation is finished for the time being, most of these have been fulfilled with the last three becoming essentially irrelevant. Oh, well, I'm still alive. The exhibition at the New York Public Library in honor of the 10th anniversary of the Center for Book Arts, uh, all members' work, tells it all. In the catalog of the exhibition, one finds the Berkeleyite Sass Colby's Brownie Book of Painting, mixed, mixed media, and boy is it mixed, a kind of paper cutout, uh, and which is to be charitable, only a book-like object. Or from London, we have Sarah Furman's sex book, Molded Paper and Paint, which looks like a large stack of Kleenex doing peculiar things. The photograph of it in the catalog was taken in bright, bright sunshine on a lawn. Sarah Furman's other offering, cookbook, is not shown, but this is the caption for it. Book, sawn and painted. <laughs> Making this caption a fascinating reversal of the notion that a picture is worth a thousand words. <laughs> in the same catalog, is August Hexer's beautifully printed The Ship of Fools, looking lovely, elegant, and ordered, seemingly a diamond in a dunghill. It is shown next to the German artist Axel Heibel's book-like object, for which, once again, the caption is deeply eloquent. Buch Object H, crayon, comma, rubber stamps. As Abe Lerner said, now, who is kidding who? Somewhere in the middle of these starkly contrasting examples is Richard Biggis. 
His Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking by Whitman is a series of large printed sheets in portfolio, which are examples of concrete typography. Abe Lerner describes each sheet as an ingenious octagonal whorl, whorl of the word of the words of the title continuously repeated. They are fascinating to look at. This is Abe's continuing caption. Fascinating to look at with their skillful combination of rich individual elements, centaur type, Japanese paper, lovely colors, and superb press work, all handled with great artistic feeling. Looked upon as prints, art prints, each leaf intrigues the viewer with its inventive arrangements. Its appeal is only to the viewer, however. Such work with type and press must be labeled prints, not printing. It must be filed under A for art and not B for books. But at least the typography is emphasized in this piece and the quality of the letter press printing is first rate. I maintain that it is not all that difficult to see when a book is primarily an example of fine printing no matter how it is illustrated, and when a book is primarily a vehicle for an artist, no matter how well the book is printed. We draw the line at the latter at, the latter at USF. As a collection to fine printing, our emphasis is on typography. The abuse on one's credulity and tolerance uh, currently is fairly constant. Among the egregious offenders are expensive instant rarities one of only 20 copies signed by the author or illustrator's left hand, the edition limited to only 17,000 copies, the stream of expensive books illustrated however competently by artists who seem never to sleep and who issue their own work suitably embedded in a piece of literature at a rate reproducing rabbits would envy. I put it this way in a fine print review to name names of an odd bestiary produced by the Chelonidae Press. As charming as the book is, there remains finally the consideration of cost. At this rate of lavish production, it seems to me that few collectors or libraries will be able to afford complete collections of the Chelonidae Press. And this may become a problem too with similar operations such as the Penny Royal Press. Both operations combine fine printing with art. But are the pr products examples of fine printing, or are they really livre d'artiste? For those library collections concentrating on fine printing, the problem is a difficult one. More libraries may soon be forced to limit their purchases of these increasingly expensive volumes, no matter that their expense is obviously commensurate with their lavish expenditure of effort and artistic talent. The problem of expense versus completeness becomes more urgent the closer it hits home. At the time that review appeared, we had already decided that we would not be able to afford a complete collection of the Chelonidae Press. That's fine. It is an East Coast press. And as I mentioned, our real strength is the San Francisco Bay Area. But at the same time, Andrew Hoyam in San Francisco was coming out with his production of John Ashbery's poem, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, bound, as someone put it, in full hubcap. <laughs> well, the alternating text pages and engravings are printed on handmade paper discs 18 inches in diameter. This assemblage, it is not a book, was offered at $2,500.
It was the first thing of Andy's we did not buy. So now we do not have a complete collection of the Arif Press, and that hurts. He had already published his $1,000 Moby Dick with the Barry Moser wood engravings, and his previous book had been an edition of The Apocalypse, illustrated by Jim Dine at $1,500. Each new book Andy produces seems to be more expensive than the last one. His most recent book was an edition of Ulysses, with illustrations by Robert Motherwell, which appeared for a modest $7,500. You begin to see my problem. I finally explained our financial quandary to Andy and suggested to him that some smart investor might like to consider donating the items we do not have. In time, they would provide a healthy tax write-off for the investor, and for our part, we would be pleased to be the institution to receive them. For some reason, Andy was not very enthusiastic about my plan. There will always be difficulty in finding worthy texts and appropriate materials for fine printing. It sometimes seems that the great days are no more. But if we think things are bad now, here, for a reassuring, I'm sorry, if, if, if we think things are bad now, here for a reassuring perspective is Harry Duncan speaking of the early years of the Cummington Press in his essay, The Technology of Hand Printing. We couldn't find, at the beginning of the 1940s, anywhere at all in this country to learn how to print type in the traditional way on damp paper with a hand press. And it was rumored that no one here had done so for at least a generation, a lapse of time to superannuate the art. But as we know, letterpress fine printing has flourished since then, partly due to the enthusiasm and dedication of people like Harry Duncan. I mean, even if what was once a craft is becoming an art, we can be encouraged by a printer such as Barbara Cash, the proprietor of the Ives Street Press, who states in her printer statement in Breaking the Bindings, designing, printing, and binding books is more satisfying to me than anything I have accomplished in the commercial field of graphic design. I love to work with the colors and textures, the beautiful type, to see the words through as a complex unit, to make each page related to each other and the whole is an exciting challenge. Words like that prevent me from despairing about the fate of fine printing. This is the kind of work I want to collect for the library, to encourage, and to show others looking for inspiration and standards. Thank you. Now the visual aids. I have a mere 140 slides, so I thought the last three minutes of the lecture might be, uh, no. Uh, these are uh, various things I've spoken of in my talk, as well as an alphabetical arrangement of fine printing since 1975, and I thought we could go through them quite quickly. Turn it this way. You can see the hand, handmade paper. Uh, the wood engravings in the book were done specifically for the book by John DePaul. Mrs. Allen hand colored uh, every illustration in each copy, and they also hand printed the book uh, with their handset type on their hand press, on their handmade, hand dampened paper, and hand bound every copy. 
that's the highest end of fine printing. And their beautiful prospectus. Some people just collect the prospectuses of the Allen Press. Now let's see, I have a focus here, I think. Is that all right? Is that all right? And that's an interior. John DePaul. And isn't that a lavish and wonderful binding? That's a sure touch. And this is their most recent book. Uh, less ambitious. Lewis Allen has just recently had a stroke, and although it wasn't uh, uh, disabling, uh, he is not printing at the moment, and I don't know that they will ever print another book. It depends on how the therapy uh, goes. These are from original drawings by Michelle Fourgeois of France. Uh, they have used her for an, as an artist for a number of their books. And the Aurelia Press of our friend Mike Pike uh, strike me as among the finest uh, private presses in the United States today. He doesn't do books in the way that the Allens regularly do. He does small pieces, little set pieces, but in their way they're each perfect. And he has, you can tell by the, way, the touch, that his typographic touch is impeccable. Nothing wrong with that. That's the cover. Elegant, simple and elegant. And here, sort of the opposite end of the scale, is Wesley Tanner of the Arif Press's Quartet, a $900 book issued in 165 copies. It's a lavish binding in its box. It's sitting on its box there. Title page. I'm sorry, I got the thing crooked, but I'm very fond of a little beaver, I guess it is. And uh, I wanted to show you, uh, look at the heading here, the title. And this is the previous page, which is sort of the half title for each of these little four stories. <laughs> that in a $900 book. That does not go, does not wash, does not work. And uh, it's another object lesson, but we don't have time for it. There's the uh, a, a book in aluminum, uh, what is it? Accordion in aluminum box. Uh, Andy Hoyam produced that. And here's a little brochure that he uh, has issued. There's the book in full hubcap. And then the uh, cover for the book that followed, The Temple of Flora, uh, by Jim Dine. Uh, the, the modest aside of the, ca of the prospectus reading, well, the prints aren't, uh, uh, what's the word, botanically accurate. But there they are. Good, good reason to do a Temple of Flora, all right. 
And this is a local uh, production that most of you may not have seen, but I wanted to, it's a portfolio. I suppose I would have to say it's not a book, but it's certainly a collection of wonderful fine printing, and I wanted to go through some of the items in it. Well, there's the list of contents, and you can see many pleasant uh, names. Can you, is that? There, I better stop there. But uh, uh, a wide range, a wide range of uh, Bay Area printers. This is the piece uh, David Lance Goins uh, contributed, and Robin Hayek did this one. I think it's beautifully designed. And uh, Peter Rutledge Koch. And what is this? Oceanides Press. I know, I've got to find out more about them, but I thought that yellow was terrific. Couldn't resist showing it to you. And this is the last piece that uh, Joyce and Edwin Wilson printed together. And that's, they used real onion for the print. and uh, Richard Diebenkorn. There were about six prints interleaved with the uh, examples of printing. This is the first book of a new publishing house, Heron House, and is the um, uh, work of um, Susan Acker. Uh, her press is the Feathered Servant Press, which she uh, maintained after the death of uh, Don, uh, Don Fleming. Didn't matter. charming page from it. And I think a, a really very attractive cover. I was very surprised. This is Clifford Burke's latest effusion. A landscape with cows in it. That's the title. It's kind of fun though. I like it. But is it books? Um, I, yes, there is. I couldn't get it all in one slide, so I just I left the typography. You know me. And this is a um, not a recent uh, publication, but it's all I had, and I wanted to show you something of the Camberwell Press. It's a wonderful book, beautiful marriage of illustration and text. And another English press, the Fleece Press, and a beautiful cover of it. Look at the little touches of blue. And Gregonig Press, The Mountains of Whale, their most recent large book. Beautiful book. And rather striking, it comes in a slipcase. So in the slipcase, all you can see is that spectacular spine. And Robin Hayek. These are a little crooked, too. I'm not sure why. But 
that was a beautiful book and a lot of work. She made all her own marble paper. And the cover also marbled. This is the, uh, an effusion from Iowa, the first uh, effusion of the center, uh, Iowa Center for the Book. It was $1,000, and I must say I wasn't very happy with it. These are three earlier titles of uh, the Kelly Winterton Press, and I think uh, that is one of the surest and most elegant presses operating today. Again, like Mike Pike's Aurelia Press, small pieces, hardly ever a large book, but each piece thoughtfully and beautifully designed and printed. And one of the slightly larger books, It's nice, I think. And Peter Koch uh, did this for Mondavi Winery. It's a double page, or a page of the book. I like the top one. And there's the binding of the ordinary edition. I don't think is anything to sneeze at. And the deluxe edition and uh, bounded handmade paper. And the interesting binding. I have another slide later of uh, these interesting non-adhesive bindings. And you see it's the handmade paper with a strip of vellum with the cords coming through. This is a the catalog I mentioned that was done in the uh, Adobe Systems uh, Garamond, well, inside, to, yeah, it's rather startling, isn't it? There's the Garamond. Not the titling. Can you see it? good as I can get. And a wonderful uh, portfolio from the Libanus Press. That's a box uh, for it. And they were a series of beautifully printed and mounted examples. I would like to have shown you everything in it, but we don't have time. This is one of their largest, most ambitious books, the Symposium. Greek on one side and the translation on the other. And this is even a later work. This is Edible Architecture, a page from Edible Architecture. It's a wonderful book. And there's the cover. <laughs> and a recent little uh, pamphlet they issued for their open house, as it were. I guess it's because the screen keeps going back and forth that I 
get that inconsistency. The Meadow Press of San Francisco is no more. Uh, Lee McClellan has given up printing, uh, gone into something she said that would pay better. But this was her glorious swan song. This was the last book of the Meadow Press. Lovely Japanese paper, actually Korean handmade paper. And the stunning binding. One to be proud of. This is a brand new press in San Francisco, the Okeanos Press. It means ocean, I found out. And the Patterson Press uh, uh, was done, started by one of the students at the Mills program. I should say a little about that, shouldn't I, Martin? Um, well, uh, sadly, the uh, book arts degree is not going to be offered at Mills uh, any longer. Uh, the students in the program currently will get their degree, but they aren't taking any new students. Instead, the new uh, Olin Library will house a center for the book, and uh, it is a funded operation of which Martin Antonetti will be the director when it opens. The library is scheduled to open in January of, of next year. Uh, and it will not be so much student-oriented as uh, book-world-oriented, uh, featuring lectures and workshops and that sort of thing that students and non-students can take. So it should be an exciting new development in the Bay Area. I'm sorry, I think this is a very charming little book. And this is the Petrarch Press, one of their earlier works. That is Peter Bishop, who happily is with us tonight. And I think he uh, designed the book beautifully. And uh, the hand-pressed printing on the handmade paper is a joy to me. This is his most ambitious book to date, very dramatic, uh, and yet very restrained typographically. Purgatory Pie Press, also of New York. Some of their charming leather bindings. I do kind of like them. I go that far. They are books. They're bound. And this is a, this is fun. Another one of theirs. <laughs> Just being silly, I know, but. I like it. So exuberant and full of fun. Now this is a uh, slightly lopsided attempt, the Pyracantha Press, to uh, do an earnest edition, certainly, of Venus and Adonis. And it's set, uh, the stanzas are set in the same, uh, in many kinds of visual ways, to the original edition of 1593. The trouble is, uh, of course, in that period, the book should be on laid paper, shouldn't it? But they threw away any historical ver ver verisimilitude that way and used wove paper because there are two illustrations, and the two illustrations were more important than the text. And that's where presses and art departments, I think, get sidetracked. New catalog of Sebastian Carter of England, 
This is work of Patrick Ray. It's a great book and a lovely binding. Another book, which John Bidwell was largely responsible for producing, although Patrick Ray printed it. And it's very attractive cover. Now I have a partial carousel more, if we have time. The Red Butte Press is the hand press operation at the University of Utah. Uh, it was given to the University of Utah by Lewis and Dorothy Allen. They're large Colombians, so they don't have a large press to print on anymore. A very interesting paper, very interesting look, I think, and an interesting binding. You can see the Utah stamped in gold, but another a very effective and extremely attractive non-adhesive. Am I in your way? Sorry. Non-adhesive binding. How many of you had seen that book or knew of the Red Butte Press? See? Good. I'm doing my job. Chauncey, that's not fair. We talk every week. That's not fair. Another uh, uh, English effusion. I think that's a wonderful book. And new books from the Rocket Press, also of England. This is not a good picture of uh, a Goya title, one of the two Exophidia books that our friend Richard Gabriel Raman printed before he gave it all up. But that is the marbled paper binding of the Goya. Isn't that something? And there's Atlantic Crossing by John Cheever. I think this was the last. And look at that binding. Full, rich, red leather. It's a beautiful book. Saraband Press in this beautiful, beautiful title page. And its cover. And then again in England, Christopher Skelton, although he's not as well as he was, uh, this is going to be a magnificent book. Uh, I thought I'd show it to you, the prospectus. He had just done a beautiful uh, facsimile of the four Gospels illustrated by Gill, full-size, handmade paper, uh, a lavish and, and uh, loving effort on the part of Eric Gill's nephew. The latest book from uh, Jack Stoffacher of San Francisco, the Greenwood Press. And our friend W. Thomas Taylor, also prints, as well as, as a bookseller. And the cover. That's the same paper he used on Catalog 42, by the way. And the Turkey Press near Santa Barbara with paper art. And this is his own handmade paper, which I 
admire tremendously. Certainly Prince will. And another one of his books, all on his own handmade paper. And I, I think that's a terrific cover. It's a real map, just cut up. Issued by the government, and he said that the, uh, the paper and the materials are so incredibly high that that binding will last forever, he thinks. And uh, one aspect of the care that uh, a press will give to uh, every detail of a book. This is the first version of a cover for the Turkey Press. And you see, they didn't feel the, the edges, the hinges would have enough strength, so they cut it in apart and put a cloth hinge in to keep it more durable. I was allowed to keep the early state. The Weatherbird Press, Vance Gary. This is one of my all-time favorite books. I like the subject. I like the author, too. That's one reason. Beautiful. Really pochoir effect. And the binding and the dust jacket. Whittington Press. You'll see that paper in a, in a moment. That's the binding for the Kerwin Press book. Yellow Barn Press, a couple of their new books with more wood engravings by John DePaul. I'll try. Is it? Okay. So the trouble is the screen is going this way. It's not holding still. And Walter Schuring, I think that's beautifully designed. And remember the paper? There it is. Looks great. And the Yellow Boldy Press of California. And here uh, to end the press section is a selection of, of those wonderful non-adhesive bindings shown together. They work wonderfully well, and I, I certainly I would hope to encourage more printers to do that. The famous grinning at me. And that's, you see how it folds out. And some aspects of the art world into the book world. There's Pyramid Atlantic on the end. Printed matter, which deals with artist books that just moved. And here are a couple of internal, that's an a internal page from the uh, Pyramid Atlantic brochure. You can see how interested I would be. And from SMS 3, I couldn't resist showing you some of these. That's a great one. I like baby Ruth there. 
This is wonderful too. It speaks eloquently on its own. There is sex book. And I said it was a stack of Kleenex doing funny things, and it isn't that true? There it is at the bottom, in the sunshine. And there's poor August Hexer's book. Sorry. I didn't mean to push that one. Slide out of place. This is a uh, new development in San Francisco, the Printing Museum of Northern California. Uh, we don't have uh, many exhibits of fine printing, not yet, but it certainly will over time. It will be another venue to show the, the local and new uh, printing, but it's also interested in the history of printing, and their exhibits so far have been historical, but uh, fine printing certainly will be one of the features of this museum. And I'm pretty sure none of you had heard about it, so I thought I'd at least photograph the brochure. This is the poster of our current exhibit. I thought it came out pretty nicely. I'll tell you that book conferences can be anywhere, programs. And our printer, as well as bookseller, Harold Berliner, thought this might be a title of interest. An interesting wood engraving by John DePaul. I wonder how, how many portraits are there of Gutenberg? And the Bromer's catalog. Beautiful one. And that's uh, Monica Strauss's catalog for her store. Now this is volume 10, number 4, a fine print. Read the subtitle. And then the review instead of a review. And there's uh, an interesting um, abracadabra. Hmm. More splendid than, than all of them. It's just a magnificent issue. And two books that any good rare book room should have from Toronto. Thick listings of Canadian presses, one in the Toronto area and then everything outside Toronto. And if you don't have those, they're wonderful to have. You really ought to get them. And that is it. Thank you very much. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for being patient. I ran over a little. Steve Corey is my book arts mentor in the Bay Area where I uh, live when I'm doing my real job. And I've said this a thousand times to him, and I say it again tonight. Thank you, Steve.
please uh, join me in honoring him at a reception in room 523 now and uh, stop on your way at the Notion Shop in room 511.